And so Paul wrote to the Corinthians, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Grace, mercy, and peace be with you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus the Christ. Amen. You may be seated. So last Sunday, we heard the voice of John the Baptizer, proclaiming to his disciples, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And we talked about the fact that that is the God to whom we point, especially amongst those who are dealing with disasters, whether global or local or personal. When somebody asks, why is God letting this happen to me? Why is God doing this to us? Our answer is always to point to Jesus, to point to the cross and say, here is our God who suffered and died for us and is not unfamiliar with what you are going through or what we are going through. But this week, we learn from Paul in his letter to the church in Corinth where not to point. Not to point at each other and not to point at me and not to point at the things that are not Jesus the Christ, that are not the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So, a few weeks ago when I was at McGill University and talking, right before I got up to do my presentation, there was a representative of Ravi Zacharias International Ministries. Now, I really like Ravi Zacharias. He is a great apologist for the Christian faith. In fact, he played a heavy hand in the part of my conversion and coming to confessional Lutheranism, or as we heard at Fort Wayne, not so much conversion, but awakening to the fullness of the Christian faith. But as he talked about all the different places to point, to see evidence of God's work in the world, I was a little troubled by the last one that he gave. He pointed to Christians. If you want to show somebody the truth of Christianity, point to Christians. Point to their changed lives. Point to how their hearts have become more open to love and concern for other people. This is evidence, he said, of God's work in the world. And in fact, it was the last evidence that he pointed to. And a little bit later, when I was talking with the Roman Catholic chaplain for McGill, Father Joachim, at the Newman Center, and he said, well, you know, what, what were things like at the presentations? And I pointed out that I was a little bit troubled by using this as a proof for God's existence. He had a bemused look on his face, and he said, why? And then I remembered I was talking to a Roman Catholic. And they also believe that changed lives, especially the changed lives of the saints, are evidence of God's work in the world. In some ways, our evangelical brothers and sisters and our Roman Catholic brothers and sisters are very much alike in wanting to see in people and in our hearts evidence that God is indeed in charge of the world and at work in Christ. Now, what could possibly be wrong with this? You might yourself be thinking, well, isn't that in fact evidence of Christ being the Redeemer of the world, that people who were formerly criminals or murderers or slanderers or libelers suddenly turn their life around on account of Christ? 
It can be, but it's sort of a mixed bag, as Paul points out in Corinth. Now, Paul was preaching in Corinth, starting in the synagogue, from which he was kicked out, as often happened, and then ended up taking a small group from that Jewish synagogue to form the first Christian church in Corinth. But this church in Corinth, I don't think, was a place that Paul would point to to say, look, here is evidence of the truth of Christianity. The church in Corinth was a mess. And he certainly, Paul, was not seeing evidence of all of the changes that he perhaps would have liked to have seen within this small group of baptized believers. First, we have Chloe's people. I don't know who Chloe was. Nobody really does. But she had people, apparently. And they came to Paul with a deep concern about what was happening within the congregation. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people, Paul writes, that there is quarreling among you, my brothers and sisters. Quarreling. That's such a polite word. We try and be polite when we translate things out of the Greek, but really it meant strife, bitter contention, even to the point of violence. Christians, and they're going at it, maybe even during the worship service. And Paul has to deal with this. This was not a disagreement you see over the color of the carpeting. This was mean, and it was nasty. There shouldn't even have to be Chloe's people. Think about that for a moment. Already, it's a sign of the division. It wasn't like the elders sent a delegate to go and talk to them. It's this faction within the church. The only people there should be within the church are Christ's people. As Paul writes in Acts chapter 18, or Luke records, And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking in Corinth, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. Jesus knows who are his, but apparently so does Chloe, who knows who are hers. And there are certainly many quarrels in Corinth. And Paul's going to get to all of them in turn in his letter. Sexual immorality in chapter 5. Lawsuits between believers in chapter 6. A false understanding of divorce or of being unmarried in 1 Corinthians 7. Food offered to idols in 1 Corinthians 8 and who can and cannot eat them. Lack of good stewardship and bad tithing in 1 Corinthians 9. Dispute over the Lord's Supper and who can take it and with whom in 1 Corinthians 11. Spiritual gifts and who has the better ones in 1 Corinthians 12. And even a dispute over the resurrection of our Lord in 1 Corinthians 15. That's a lot of quarreling. So Paul is out there in the marketplace in Corinth proclaiming Christ and wanting people to see evidence that in this man, Jesus of Nazareth, God has reconciled the world to himself. I do not think that the people in the church in Corinth were the people to whom he was pointing as evidence of the message, the gospel 
that he was sharing in Corinth, Greece. Now, what was the source of the quarreling in today's particular reading? 1 Corinthians 1. We haven't even gotten very far into the letter. Well, Paul writes, what I mean about this is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Kepha, Cephas, Peter, or I follow Christ. What's basically happening here is that these Corinthians, in as much as they are Christian, are also still Greeks. They haven't really left their home culture completely yet. And so they're thinking like Greeks. And Greeks are used to having itinerant, traveling speakers, teachers, philosophers, and everybody followed their favorite. I like Bob. He is the best teacher. He's got the best PowerPoint slides. I like Sally. She is powerful and full of conviction, and she really knows what she's talking about. I don't like either of them. I follow Claire, because she's logical and rational, and everything sort of makes sense. And everybody in Corinth had their favorite teachers, or priests, or priestesses, or philosophers. And so, now that they are part of the Church of Christ, they're still thinking the same way. It's not good enough just to be a Christian. You've got to have your favorite. I like Peter, because he's the rock. Nobody shakes Peter. Well, except for the Gentiles. Well, I follow Paul, because while he can't seem to actually get a whole paragraph out when he's talking in public, his letters are phenomenal. If you don't believe me, read what Paul writes about himself. People accused him of being a great letter writer, but not so great as a public speaker. And any of you who have been to university know how this works. People tend to be either really great writers or really great speakers. You don't often get both at the same time. One of my favorite Lutheran writers is a horrible speaker. <laughs> he is one of the most boring people I could think of to listen to, but his books are fantastic. I think that was Paul. And then some people are sort of getting it, perhaps, and saying, well, I follow Christ. At least I follow the one who died for my sins. Paul says, just as you should not be pointing to the people in the pews as proof or evidence of the work of God, you should neither be pointing to the pulpit. In 2 Corinthians, because Paul is dealing with this problem over and over and over again, he writes, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Not the face of Peter, or Paul, or Mary, but the face of the one who died for you and for me and for our sins on the cross. That is who Paul says continually we must point to. Not to each other and our hearts, which so often are small and black, and not even to the one standing up wearing the alb and the stole. But collectively, 
with one voice, as one people, we point to Jesus, the Lamb of God. For Christ did not send me to baptize, Paul wrote, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Well, we just had a big discussion about baptism. How can Paul say it's not important? At least it seems to be what he's implying. That he wasn't sent out to do baptisms. What Paul's getting back to is how baptism can be abused when it is once again disconnected from the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and the cross. When it takes on a life of its own, disconnected from the word that gives baptism its power, which is the gospel. Paul could see already with these factions in the church in Corinth and the Kephas followers and the Paul followers and the Apollos followers how baptism could become just one more thing that divides the church rather than unites it in Christ. Well, I was baptized by Pastor John. I was baptized by Pastor Frank. I was baptized by Pastor Francois. Paul says, I thank the Lord that what I came to preach to you first was the gospel so that you might only understand that baptism has its power through that same gospel and not apart from it. If we ourselves are baptized and say that we are baptized, but we do not connect that baptism with the blood that Christ shed on the cross for you and me, then we miss the point. If we do not see that baptism is the application of Christ's atonement from the cross to you and me, then we don't really understand the power of baptism at all. And then baptism becomes emptied of its power. How can water do such great things? Certainly not just water. But the word of God in and with the water does these things, along with the faith which trusts this word of God in the water. For without God's word, the water is plain water and no baptism. You'll hear it again and speak it with your own lips next week. Every gift we have comes from Christ and his gospel, whether it's baptism or absolution or the supper or the scriptures. Everything points back to the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the same Christ to whom we point our friends and our neighbors, that they too might be delivered from sin and saved. Paul sees quarreling in Corinth. And what he wants is the opposite. What is the opposite of division and quarreling? Unity and peace which is precisely what Christ wants for his people. It is what he prayed before he was handed over to death. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them, and I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. have the same mind and judgment in you that is in Christ Jesus. It's what Paul writes to the Philippians. And is what we strive for as the church as well. Not that it's going to make our hearts perfect, 
Not that we strive that every pastor be identical and interchangeable, but what we do want is that all of us, pastor and people, grow together to have the same mind and the same judgment pointing to the same cross and the same Christ. The reason why our churches practice what we call closed communion, that only those who have confessed a common faith in Christ is precisely because we want to preserve that same judgment and that same mind in each other. When I was in my very first parish, they had gotten sort of lazy and gotten to the kind of sense that anybody who came up to the altar could take the Lord's Supper, whether they'd made a commitment to the faith being preached from that pulpit or not. And when I started introducing them to the idea of closed communion, the verse that I put in our bulletins was precisely our epistle reading from today. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Now, when I did that, a lot of people said, Pastor, I don't understand how how that has anything to do with the Lord's Supper. It is no accident that Paul writes these words at the very beginning of a letter where one of the deepest and most significant problems in the same church is precisely Holy Communion. That people don't know what they're doing when they come to the Lord's Supper. In fact, Paul has to write in 1 Corinthians 11, in this I cannot commend you because when you gather together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For each one goes ahead of the other, as if it was going out to a restaurant. My food comes first, I'm going to eat before you do. The rich ate together, the poor ate together, and they did not see themselves as one body, with one mind and one judgment, pointing to the same Lamb of God. And that is the point of closed communion. It is the point of everything we do. It is the point of our evangelism. It is the point of our mission that together, with one voice, with one action, we point to the one same Christ. That we don't find ourselves pointing some of us over here, some of us over there, some of us in here, some of us out there. But if we gather together and someone were to stand in front of us right now and said, what is it that makes you all Christian? We would together, with one action and one voice, point to the cross and say, we confess Jesus Christ, our Savior, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. That is where we point, only and always. Not off in different directions, not into our hearts, not to the pastor, not to the beauty of the church building, not to the comfortableness of the pews, not to the wonderfulness of the council. We point to Christ, as Paul urges us to do, and as Jesus himself commanded of us. In the name of Jesus Christ.